Thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Ben Grinspan, and today we're going to be looking at culture in the vertical using Q, our cultural intelligence platform, to unpack trends and changes in human behavior. And we have a very special guest today. We're doing actually a fairly special format today. We are going to start uh, our briefing by talking to Heather McGowan. She is a future of work expert, uh, a member of our advisory board, and a big thinker uh, in all things uh, the future of career and, and money, and we're really excited to have her on. You'll see that in just a second. I did want to introduce, though, our regular cast of experts, my wonderful co-reaper, Devery Velasquez, two familiar faces, Anna Martin and Rob Henze. And today we have a brand new face. She has never been on the briefing before. We are so thrilled to have her, uh, Portia Perkins. How are you doing, Portia? Thank you for joining us today. Um, so let's dive on into that conversation that I taped a little bit earlier with Heather, and then we will talk about it on the other side. Well, thank you for joining us, Heather. We are thrilled to have you here today, talking about the first part of our uh, well, of our business bets that focus really on the future of work. You can be joining us for another one um, as well. So really appreciate. Always pleasant. <laughs> always great to see you. Um, and, you know, we're starting here with the Great Wage Reckoning, right? Uh, and, and the pandemic has really highlighted a number of societal and economic disparities, which include wage inequities in the workplace. That's what this business bet uh, is, is really about the future of, of what that new cognizance means, right? And among the wave of, of the Great Resignation, rising inflation, and growing dissent among workers, or even just growing vision among workers, we're really asking ourselves different questions about what it means to take a job, what it means to be in a job, and, and ultimately that relationship relationship between employee and employers. I'm really excited for you to take us through some of your really fascinating thinking on this. You are definitely one of our uh, most future uh, focused thinkers uh, when it comes to issues of, of economics and the future of work. And well, well, why don't we dive on in? So Heather, I know I mentioned the great resignation. You have done, as I said, some really interesting work on this. And I'm particularly interested in, in a, a concept that you have around uh, perhaps the future of the refuse, Nick. Um, why are workers empowered to refuse more than they were, you know, uh, before the pandemic? And kind of what does it mean to refuse a salary or a new job in 2022 versus, I don't know, no longer tolerating um, some current, you know, work conditions? Take us through this work a little bit and, and tell us what this new kind of empowerment and, and, and feeling like you can finally say no, what that actually means for, for workers and their, their economic benefit. Sure. So... I think it has a lot to do with the fact that as of today, it's been 705 days since the World Health Organization declared it a global pandemic. And in that 705 days, we've lost a tremendous number of people. One in 500 kids is now orphaned in the United States. For every two people who die globally, one uh, child is left an orphan. So we have this underlying crisis, and that's just the lives lost. It doesn't include the trauma that some folks have been through with illness, caring for somebody, or the conditions that became really untenable about work. Mm. So I have this, you know, we have this idea of the great resignation as a big bucket of people. And at the last time I, I counted, we had um, 3.6 million people sort of missing. And everybody was like, well, they've all just quit. I actually think the bucket's made up of three things we need to understand. First, there are the folks who are retired. Many of them are not likely coming back. Right. Um, according to some uh, research, I think there's an excess of about 3 million people over the during the pandemic that retired that had above and beyond the normal levels of retirement. 
Um, I think we're just seeing the beginning of this. I think January to March, when everybody gets their last bonus, there's going to be another wave of those folks. Uh, and by some analysis, 40% um, of the folks who lost their job or were fired during the pandemic because of changes in their industry just said, you know what? My house is worth more than I thought it was going to be. My market's worth less more. I can live with less. It's just not worth it. Particularly when this is a population that was more vulnerable to the to COVID. Yeah. Um, the next group is reshuffle. These are the folks who said, you know what? I've got time to get off, uh, you know, stop working for a little while and retrain for another position, another industry, another lifestyle. And then there are the folks who just simply refuse. They aren't necessarily retiring. They're not old enough to retire, but they're saying, you know what? I don't want to get punched in the face anymore for 10 bucks an hour. Um, I need physical safety. I need psychological safety. I need childcare, or I want some mobility. Huge piece around mobility that I think people aren't paying attention to yet. Dead end jobs, not going to be able to keep people in as long. They've got to be able to go somewhere. So that's how I see the bucket of it. And then I see the great resignation as an opportunity. Uh, we've okay. all been in the same storm, not in the same boat. Um, for some folks, going back to work is incredibly stressful. Some folks during the pandemic had more time with their families. Some people were incredibly isolated. Other folks were overwhelmed with care, giving responsibility. So I say there's five levers we could pull right now. Everybody's talking about pay, and that's important, particularly with the rising inflation. There's actually five considerations. Sure, compensation. Where are you? Are you paying them enough? Are you paying them fairly? Um, mm -hmm. The um, conference board thinks you're going to see an increase of about 3.9%. Um, coming up in the next calendar year. Um, safety, are you, are you physically safe? Are you, are you, is your physical safety threatened at work in a way that it wasn't prior to the pandemic? Either because you're in close contact with people who may be infected or you're being threatened by people or you're trying to enforce rules or are you psychologically? Yeah. Um, then values and impacts. You know, when you've got 705 days to think about, is this what I'm doing with my life? Is it sucking my soul or is it engaging my purpose? Where are you on that? Uh, lifestyle and balance. People are talking about work from home. It's really that sort of scratching the surface of the work no longer necessarily being the center of our lives, but rather something that fits into our lives. And then finally, that career accelerant piece that I talked about before. So okay. why, don't, why don't you jump on into the next bit here, Heather, because I, I feel like uh, I you've put together this pyramid that I think is really interesting. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think you cribbed anything from Maslow here. Um, tell us a little bit about the post-pandemic uh, work pyramid that you have uh, that you're envisioning, that you theorized? Yeah, I think it's got kind of five layers, but three sort of chunks of it. So first it's compensation. Are you paying people fairly? Are you providing physical and psychological safety? So physical safety is the, you know, the threats from harm, the threats from mm -hmm. others. The psychological safety, as we hand off more and more to technology, we're gonna be asking folks to do stuff they've never done before, in some cases, stuff that's never been done before. So you've got to establish that psychological safety so people feel comfortable making that leap. And I consider yeah. these together the non-negotiable essentials. It's not enough. If you do this and only this, you'll keep people for a couple of years. You want to keep them longer? Think about burnout prevention. And lifestyle imbalance right. is a big piece of that. Because gone are the days where you can sort of say the job is the center of everything I do. I'm going to miss my kids, whatever, my parents, whatever. My life is in the backseat. Not anymore. Not after 705 days of staring in our mortality. Yeah. Hard then, to put the genie back in the bottle on that yeah, one. Yeah. 
It's gone on too long. To, we're never going to go back to 2019. And then on top of that is what I consider the motivational fuel. This is how you engage folks. And it's they're aligned with your values. They want to make the same kind of impact you want to make on the world. And you're providing them some mobility and some career accelerant, either inside your organization or outside of it. So there's some companies that I've talked to who said, listen, there's no, if I hire somebody with this position, there's really nowhere for them to go with this position inside the organization. I said, great, there's your opportunity to explain to them the things they'll learn in this position, they can take somewhere else. And then maybe someday they boomerang back and come back to your company. But if you can't articulate what they can do, it's no longer just about what you learn, it's also about what you learn. You have a hard yeah. time attracting folks. So I, I love this. I mean, I have a couple, I have a couple questions for you because uh, I, I think there's this is so rich. And, and one thing that we've been talking about just candidly as a, as, a, as a consultancy is this idea of like what forms a good job in 2022, right? What can you point at? In, in 1951, a good job was something that, uh, you know, was tangible that you spent 40 hours a week at, you were unionized and you took home, um, you know, a salary that could pay for, for everything, right? It is no longer 1952, um, despite some people's best efforts. Um, so I'm curious kind of what that means in, in the context of this pyramid, in this thinking, and even in the sense of that refusal um, uh, a diagram that we saw earlier. Yeah, it's, it's no longer enough to say, you know, you report to me, I have all the answers because leadership shifts here too. Um, totally. We're asking leaders to basically take folks on explorations, no longer just simply exploitations or executions of tasks. You're really uh, motivating your people, not top down, but bottom up. So people are attracted to a leader. Gallup did a, a study recently that if you're, if you're engaged in your work and you're particularly engaged with your manager or your leader, that you, to, to scoop that person away, you're going to need to bump up this area at least 20%. But if hmm. you're not engaged, you can snatch them up for the same or nothing. Yeah, it's, so it's the, the the investment is there in keeping people engaged. I mean, I have to ask. I, I'm I'm looking at this in, in a bit of a way through a political lens, right? Because politics is is really downstream from from culture. And I guess my question is: we talk so much about jobs now, right? And and really in in politics in general, jobs are are this big focus. Do you think that leaders and, and leaders, you know, politically, the people making some of the policy decisions here, or even high up people in large organizations, get this pyramid, get this these levels of of, of need? Because I think you might have some very different answers from different uh, perhaps generations uh, on this. Yes, um, some of them get it. I mean, I speak to companies all over the world, and they they get it. Um, sometimes they think they can just pull the the compensation lever, or mm -hmm they can sort of talk about culture and values on the interview and at the annual meeting and not much in between. Right. Um, and, you know, I was, I was speaking to one, one uh, large group of business leaders and, and somebody started their question by saying, well, let's face it, we've been spoiled our employees over the last, like at the time it was a year and a half. I said, stop, full stop right now. Uh, if you yeah. think you've spoiled your employees who have kept the trains running on time, during this pandemic, totally, you don't understand your workforce and the power of it. And, and what a fabulous one more thing I want to share, if that's right. So, totally, um, in organizations, it was for a very long time, and in a large part because of the Milton Friedman shareholder value era. Now, Milton Friedman was an economist, University of Chicago, wrote, a, wrote a, an article, and I think it was New York Times in 1975, and said the only social responsibility of a company is to return profits to shareholders. Full stop. And so that's how companies operated for about 50 years. 
Yeah. Um, in that process, we started to see people as just a means to create the value, right? So people, uh, the value was the purpose and the people were the means. But what I think is happening now, and this is why I'm calling it the human capital era, is that shifting. The purpose is becoming the people and mm. the value created becomes a byproduct. So how would you run your organization if it wasn't about how do I use the people in the process, but right. instead, how do I empower the people? How do we remove obstacles from the people? How do I optimize the performance of the people, which may mean more days off. It may mean better benefits. It may be better compensation. It may be better investment in leadership and management because the byproduct is going to be better. I, I would guess, and I will bet better yeah. treated as a byproduct than the focus. Well, I, I, first of all, I think that's incredibly smart because in many ways, the product that we create is fungible, is changeable. The, the people are, are meant to be are, are some, you know, somewhat more static. And my right. question goes back a little bit to that foundational sense. I, I suspect there is a reason why you put salary there as that foundational um, uh, you know, touchstone for, for your pyramid. And this you know, briefing is very much about the great wage reckoning. I, I'm curious about what wages mean both at a moment where they have increased impressively, uh, also during a moment of um, you know, higher inflation than we've seen in, in 40 years. What does it mean for wage to both be a foundational part of a job, but also something that increasingly we're, you know, we're, we're thinking differently about where it's, where it's prioritized? Yeah, I mean, it used to be, what well, can I get away with paying somebody? And mm. now it's becoming more and more, how much more can we afford to pay people and keep the scale in our operations to keep it sustainable? Because research came out in the last couple of weeks that, you know, all the wage increases in some jobs are being entirely eaten up by inflation. So the right. advantage you thought you were getting by paying people more is not really there because it's being wiped out by, you know, the cost of living. Well, and a geeky economics question that I have had uh, is this question of like, was inflation low in the 90s, 2000s, and 2010s because uh, wages were basically stagnant? And, you know, at a certain point, we need to recognize that a society where people get richer might also have some inflation issues. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, that there's research there's going back to, you know, that was the mid-late 80s when, you know, we saw a decoupling between wages and productivity, you know, and- yeah. Um, one direction that most of those wages went. Yes, it's, you know what, it is the it is the goal of the modern organization to play both macroeconomist and sociologist. Yeah. Uh, and that's where people like you and me come in, hopefully. So now that we've heard Heather's wise words, and I can't wait to get back to her with the second part of that that you guys will see a little bit later. I did wanna ask our panel here uh, some questions just because that was, there's so much richness in what we just discussed, whether you're thinking about the future of retirement or what the role CEOs play, there's a lot to unpack. So just to start with that, Rob, I'm, I'm really interested again in a little bit of what she said about that retirement piece, about people retiring earlier, just and, and being like, you know what, I am done with the workforce. And I guess my question is, you know, I think we understand somewhat what that means for the baby boomers who are experiencing that, but what does it mean for their coworkers or even their potential coworkers who are Gen X, baby boomers, and Gen Z? What does it mean to have an even larger cohort move out of the, the workspace? Is this an opportunity for everybody in addition uh, to, uh, to uh, you know, retiring boomers? Well, I think there's like some, as with most of, the, of our signals in the briefing, some, some good things and some less good things by this, right? I mean, on the one hand, 
you know, you're going to have knowledge and expertise exiting the proverbial building uh, kind of all at once, which makes, you know, mentorship and, and learning opportunities based on past successes and, and failures, you know, just that knowledge transfer is going to sort of um, um, cycle out much more quickly, right? And fewer people have the opportunity to learn there. But uh, on the other hand, there's something really exciting, I think, um, in the context of Gen X really having the opportunity to kind of step up and assume the mantle as I guess mm -hmm. you could call like our leadership generation uh, as, as if you will, you know, generations who have come of age with technology and who are less guided by work constructs that might be outdated now. And I'm not trying to make any sort of blanket statement and say boomers don't know how right. to work in the modern world and, and everyone doesn't, but you know, there's obviously a lot of innovative thinkers in the boomer generation that are continuing to be in the workforce for quite some time. Um, but the beginning of a bigger generational change at a time of accelerating cultural change could be a really positive thing as we try to navigate all of these things that are happening to us right now in real time. Yeah, I think, I think that's- I, Go ahead. Yeah. Another thing too, when we think of early retirement and the people taking it is that it's not so much that they're exiting the workforce, but they're more ready for life. And it's something mm -hmm. that we'll see in a lot of the signals that we're discussing. It's, it's about being a little more present in what's going on in the present moment. So people are taking more risk with their finances and the way they even perceive the rest of their life in terms of, okay, I'm ready for something else. I may not know exactly what's going to happen, but let's do it. Right. And some people have just realized, you know, it's, it's, you know, once you stop spending that money on the commute every day, uh, mm -hmm. you might actually be able to afford it uh, to, to, you know, uh, retire a little earlier. Portia, let me bring you in here, um, because I think one of the really interesting things to me about this is like a social shift a little bit against the 2010s hustle culture, you know, the idea that you've always got to be working, always got to be grinding. And that's good. There are some brands that benefit from that. But what should the LinkedIn's and the Indeed's of the world think about as we talk about this pivot to work-life balance? Can they be part of that conversation? I think so. I think it's really, um, I think it's less of a, should they be part of the conversation, a really requirement from a lot of job seekers. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the key word in that sentence is balance, right? I think even people who love their jobs need flexibility and boundaries for things outside of the office. And that was true before the pandemic and even more important now as we have increased demands and it's becoming clearer every day that um, you also need to focus on mental health. So I think it's more of a requirement more than, you know, a should we conversation. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And Anna, let me ask you one last thing here because we're, we're gonna get into it in a second. Um, you know, Megan mentioned that she hears a lot of C-suiters who think their employees were like uh, spoiled in the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, from getting to wear like pajamas at work as though that is the world's greatest thing to spoil someone with. Um, and I don't know if any of us agree with that. That is particularly true, but, um, I think she's, uh, you know, I, I, it, it definitely struck her clearly. And I guess my question is, what is the danger of that perception as we learn to live with COVID? You know, like, is that something that CEOs need to break ASAP uh, if we're going to actually get back into the office ever? Yeah, I can't really think of a statement that would illustrate your disconnect from your workforce more than something like that. And the words spoiled and pandemic don't go together at all. Right. Um, you know, there's 
there's a disconnect between understanding that your employees are actually your strength and your power and part of the engine that keeps everything going. And even if they were robots, they would need batteries and brakes and technical support. So what what does that look like when you're a human? You need lunch breaks, you need flexibility, you need to be able to take care of your loved ones. Um, so it's it's a huge alarm bell that a CEO in this day and age would even say that out loud, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's very fair. Okay, let's jump into our story here. Uh, Debra, can you tell us about, you know, we, we talk a lot about the Great Resignation here, and certainly in our conversation with Heather, and I thought this was really interesting about low-wage workers, because I think they're left out a little bit of these conversations, and I was hoping, Debra, you could uh, let us, uh, tell us about this New York Times article. Yeah, so the signal from New York Times says that the Department of Labor has reported that over 4.5 million people left their jobs in November. Um, Of course, after two years of pandemic-induced disruptions, uh, the Great Great Resignation, as it's called, has white-collar workers reevaluating their own life priorities. Um, Job turnover, however, has been primarily concentrated in hospitality and other historically low-wage industries. Indeed, Hiring Lab's Director of Economic Research, Nick Bunker, says that the great resignation really comes down to, quote, lower wage workers finding new opportunities in a reopening labor market and seizing them. And as the economy has put a rush on reopening and rebuilding, many of these workers have decided to capitalize on the opportunity for their demand. And data from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta confirms that job switchers are getting significantly faster pay raises than people who stay in their jobs. Still, despite the demand for workers and pay increases landed by some, American workers and consumers are extremely pessimistic about the economy as a whole. Confidence is at an all-time low, and this is due to global inflation. Daniel Zhao, senior economist at Glassdoor, isn't sure whether inflation concerns were the direct contributor to people's decisions to uh, to switch jobs. He says, quote, at a time when employers are competing and raising wages so quickly, if you're not switching jobs right now, you can get left behind in the market. So my question, I want to throw this to Rob. What questions should hiring managers and leaders be asking themselves in a, uh, ahead of hiring new employees with the intention of retaining them? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, some of the things that are, I think we're already kind of percolating um, in the brains of, of managers and owners and, and bosses or whoever else uh, really kind of are taking the forefront here, right? Um, because you kind of have to salary, you know, salary proof your company, not allow your people through, your, not, a lot, not, not a lot of them, but make quick conditions where people don't want to leave, right? And I think there's a couple of questions you want to be asking yourself, right? You know, how am I providing mentorship, training, and guidance, right? Mm-hmm. Not just filling a role and having somebody do a job, but how can you create conditions for someone to feel that they are assuming a new opportunity that will provide continued growth and learning? You know, the hiring doesn't end that process, right? Uh, a second question could be, you know, how am I creating a culture that is something people want to be a part of outside of the work, you know, so you can create that loyalty. And, you know, if, if business is great, it, everything's great. But even if business is not so great, it's that culture that kind of keeps people um, um, sticking around and, and weathering the storm for, for bigger and better things. And then finally, I guess another question is, how is my organization reflecting the values of my employees, right? We think mm-hmm. about younger generations who sort of, you know, Gen Z, the beginning of their career has been so disrupted um, by this pandemic, 
you know, think about those youngest generations who, who are putting values really at the forefront of where they want to be working, um, um, you know, and want to know where their employer stands. Um, so really well, big kind of big kind of questions outside of the work. Itself. And it's so funny because, you know, there are lots of great organizations out there who in their internal corporate teams spend a lot of time thinking about the things, Robbie, we were just talking about benefits, mentorship, purpose, right? And then they have like armies of low wage workers. And the question is, I don't think you can authentically have that conversation at the top anymore without also having that conversation at the bottom. And if people are moving away to better paying jobs, well, you better start thinking about how you add purpose to someone, even if their job is, you know, making uh, making somebody's lunch, right? Um, there, there needs to be some dignity and some value to that work as well. Uh, and, and that disconnect is, is, is proving increasingly difficult to, to manage, I think. Um, let's move here because we did talk about retirement earlier. A Washington, as Washington Post reports, because uh, we and, and Jeffrey alluded to this a little bit earlier, um, U.S. Uh, consumer inflation has risen to a four-decade high of seven percent. Uh, the increase in prices uh, has been so broad and sustained uh, that we are already beyond the point where it uh, can be considered a transitory phenomenon. How um, how high inflation will go, how entrenched it will become, becomes a critical uh, question, though, as the um, Washington Post points out in this article when it thinks about what you know what time it is to retire and when to retire. Now, of course. Inflation hits everything, hits everybody who buys anything, right? Um, and as Heather and I discussed, it's wiping out some of the purchasing power gains that get when you, you know, if you raise your salary by 6% on average, but inflation goes up by 7%, you're not actually getting a raise. It's worth pointing out that this is a global phenomenon and the idea that this is driven exclusively by US government funding is um, fundamentally wrong. Um, but there are concerns here for, for those retirees that we talked about who need to make the most of their money to make it last um, which of course becomes harder when inflation goes up. Um, fixed incomes and inflation, to be frank, just don't mix. Now, William uh, Bengen, who is a uh, well-known and retired financial advisor, tells the Post in this article that early retirement can be particularly dangerous in a moment like that. He says spending too much money too soon is sort of the issue with the first five to seven years setting the tone for how all of your retirement spending uh, will go. So he's really cautioning people to think twice about if the fact that they really can retire um, at this at this moment, given the inflation. I mean, if they can do it in inflation, even better, because eventually we'll get a hold on this. But for those of you who, for those people who think it might be transitory, you might really have to ask some questions about what your lifestyle would be outside of the working space. So Rob, I did want to start with you here real quick. I mean, what role might banks and, and financial services play here? Is it incumbent on them to, to tell uh, people who are near retirement age uh, that retiring in 2022, even though you may have the uh, cultural ability and the career ability to do it, there may be some financial uh, risks to it as, as well. What's your take? Well, obviously, you know, it is a great kind of you know, brand a civil servant opportunity for financial institutions, for, you know, NGOs like AARP or really any brand, financial services or otherwise, that is wanting to create a meaningful connection with a group of people, right? In this case, um, retirement age uh, Americans. Um, at the same time, financial, financial institutions are there to, you know, functionally to provide data that a consumer needs to make, you know, a sound decision that's right for them and their circumstances, right? Um, it's not really a financial institution's role to tell you what to do and what not to do, you know? Right. Um, advice, yes. Discourage, I I'm not so sure. Um, there there's some yeah. liability there. Um, but I also think that um, on top of that, there's an opportunity to have a, a more, a, a different type of conversation around this topic, right? 
talking about the positive impact that work can have on your life, your well-being, your uh, extending your cognitive abilities deeper into life. Um, and that can be new work options. Maybe you don't want to continue at that job you've been doing for the last 30 years. Maybe there's something that is, you know, 50% of your time that right. is doing something different. So there's a, maybe a bigger conversation about the different ways that work can, can factor into somebody's life that could be another way to kind of nudge this forward and prevent people from making decisions that may, in the end, be, you know, a, 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 a financially negative um, uh, decision. <laughs> Well, Rob, you raised something interesting here, and we're lucky to have that all, all three of our uh, of our female guests on the brief, our members of the panel today are themselves writers and enjoy writing. And uh, um, we were talking about this earlier, and I, I like what you said, but I'm also thinking like, you may need to have a more authentic conversation as a brand with a consumer or as a bank with a consumer than you used to. It, used, it could be all sort of aspirational. And th this article is about talking about some of the risks and the perils. And I'm just curious if any of our writers on the panel today want to talk about like um, what that would mean to uh, try to have that more authentic, more transparent conversation from, a, you know, from an institution that people don't necessarily expect that from like does that need to change the way that they speak does that change their voice what what's some of our writer friends takes on this well i would think that there's a shift in terms of are you going to approach this from a fear-based factor you know highlighting mm. only the risks and here's what's going to happen in five or ten or twenty years or more of the perspective that this is an opportunity so it's just shaping the right tone and also thinking yeah. of not just the people who are about to retire and thinking about it from a traditional framework, but you might have younger people retiring too who might wanna retire from one place and then rescale for another opportunity. So thinking of it more as a springboard of hope versus of volatility and demise. Yeah, this is such a rich conversation and I don't know, any banking friends watching this hit us up because I would love to do a report on this. That is fascinating stuff. Um, we did want to talk about salaries, though, right? That was the big foundational part of the pyramid Heather showed us. So, Debbie, tell us about negotiating your salary in a pandemic. Yeah, this is definitely more of an advice piece, but it's important to ensure that as an employee, you are selling your expertise and experience level at a rate that is fair to your livelihood. And in the initial job hunt, you've got to be prepared to negotiate with potential employers. Um, however, therein lies a challenge for some. Uh, so here are some quick and dirty tips for maybe curbing that. Uh, don't let recruiters rush you into making a decision on the fly because all that means likely, according to the signal, is that they're struggling to meet their own criteria and hit target numbers. Uh, set yourself uh, fair expectations. This means have an idea of what your minimum requirements are for salary, career progression, perks, and flexibility. Um, and be prepared to walk away from whatever doesn't meet your needs. In short, don't settle and know your worth. So after receiving an offer, it's important and necessary for uh, you to know what your stats equal in compensation. Uh, so be prepared and ready to have quantifiable uh, examples of past achievements like uh, sales revenue generated, projects delivered, or size of te teams managed, et cetera. Uh, and all together, you know, the signal really highlights and, and drills home the fact that negotiating can be nerve wracking. But if you are already in a comfortable position, there's no harm in asking for what you believe you are worth. And that's more important now than ever. Uh, at the same time, make sure you are well informed on the market you're in and, and, and the salary average for your type of work. So Anna, I want to ask you, 
Um, obviously, employers are feeling the heat of the global economic crisis. Uh, and I think that's why a lot of these sorts of signals exist right now. Um, but what is the big opportunity here? You know, you just touched on uh, sort of that perception of, you know, delivering something, a message in terms of is it a risk or is it an opportunity? What's the opportunity here for people in the talent pool and how are they leveraging this global crisis to their advantage? So I think it's in terms of an opportunity, a way of thinking about it is that you're entering a relationship with your potential employer. And so you're kind of doing the groundwork, getting to know them and vice versa too. So it doesn't have to be a desperate situation necessarily for either party, or at least don't reveal that in that moment, even if it is for some. And I think it's kind of interesting when you talk about the idea of worth in terms of negotiating your salary. It's also something that we're seeing in the wellness space, a lot of people talking about their worth when it comes to the people in their lives or what they do on a daily basis and tracking into purpose. So salary is, is part of that puzzle um, in understanding what you uh, bring to the table as a potential employee and what uh, the employer can also bring to the table at the same time. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just struck about this whole signal. I mean, it's funny because in some ways it's like, the same old, it's the same old advice, but done in a new environment. And one thing that Heather said earlier that really struck me was she said, and I, I wrote this down, it, you, it, when it came to salary, companies used to ask what they could get away with paying someone. And it has fundamentally transformed to what can they afford to pay someone. So all of this best practice advice, it's nice to see it align with kind of that, that opportunity. Um, let's talk about CEOs here for a second. So um, as Dave Dennison, CEO of Cubic Farms, tells us in a recent piece in Fast Company, Shopify uh, recently made headlines when it announced that its employees were going to stay remote forever. Right at the same time, um, you saw other uh, other uh, you know organizations uh, writing that they wanted people back in the office and that this experience made them realize how important the office was overall. Now, return to office that uh, has always seemed a few weeks away um, isn't just an issue of say you know thinking about new variants, but as Heather said it seems there is somewhat of a disconnect between CEOs um, who want people in one space and many workers who dread some of the problems of, of going back in, into the office. They don't wanna make water cooler chat ever again, which is weird to me because there's so much good television right now and that's perfect water cooler chat, but I digress. Um, Dennison goes on to write, quote, um, when I look at the future of work, it seems clear we've been stuck in a rut for decades because we've relied on tradition and didn't listen to what people really wanted. He calls for increased transparency, communications, and flexibility for companies um, to sort of uh, to, to make a priority for C-suite and to make uh, employees uh, known that they're heard. And what this all comes to me and 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 Portia, I'm, I'm really interested in your take in this is when I, when he speaks about transparency and when he speaks about flexibility. I think what Dennison is getting at is that there has been a trust issue that has popped up, a new one between the C-suite and their employees. The C-suite does not necessarily trust the employees. The employees don't necessarily trust that the C-suite has their best hope and the best uh, advice at heart, not here at Sparks and Honey, but other places, of course. And I guess the question is, is, is this the thing that CEOs need to worry about? Do they need to take this you know, hopeful return to office? We've got a lot more immunity to COVID right now than we've ever had before. Like, do they need to see this as a trust realignment moment? And what would you suggest um, they think about in, in that moment. Yeah, I know this is a deep one, right? Because ultimately, right. <laughs> this is very deep. It goes down to the, obviously the individual. I think Anna touched on it too, just that the basis of this is that it is a relationship, right? So not to be mm -hmm. cliche, but with any um, foundation of a relationship, you need the trust. I think 
um, and Rob touched on this earlier when we talked about retirement, right? And ultimately, employees want to feel valued um, and are more likely to stay when they have they feel that value and are empowered, right? So I think without that, no matter what you do within your operations, um, I think yeah. it's going to be hard for people to come, you know, to believe your overall purpose and go that extra mile. So um, I do think that trust is going to be essential and it's going to come down to the individual as far as in what way that kind of, um, you know, comes to fruition. Yeah. And I love that connection there between trust and purpose. Make employees feel like there is a purpose to coming back into the office and they will then probably reward you with their trust, right? Um, because it speaks to somewhere hoping to, to get out of that uh, relationship. All right. Final signal here. Let's talk really quickly about burnout. Jeffrey, uh, take us to the signal. Yeah, so while burn, burnout numbered uh, highly, it's, it trailed the desire to make more money, says a new report from global education tech firm, uh, Sing Cage Group. The group offers a list of the top reasons why people are leaving their jobs amid the great resignation. Um, conducted in late November 2021 and including 1,200 U.S. workers, who either recently left work or who had plans to resign within the next six months, underlined the importance of addressing worker concerns before they head for the exit door. Here are the top reasons uh, workers are leaving according to this group. So 91% of people said, I wanted to make more money. 89% say, I felt burnt, burnt out and unsupported. 83% say, I no longer felt like I was growing in my position. 82% say the pandemic made me reconsider my priorities and or professional goals. And 81% say I have other passions or a different career path that I want to pursue. So Cengage Group CEO Michael Hansen chalks up the list order and stats to people craving to hit the reset button. He says, quote, as millions reconsider what is important to them in life and in their next job, there is an opportunity for employers to reconsider how they support employees' well-being and professional growth. And this has also led to a notable increase in people taking online courses. Hansen details that, quote, these people aren't resigning because they're tired or exhausted. They're resigning because they have ambitions for themselves, goals, and aspirations. As Heather McGowan mentioned, uh, there are three major buckets of the 3.6 million people who left and are likely not coming back to the workforce. The retired, which is due to age or fatigue, the reshufflers, people who want to reskill, and the refusers, people who seek freedom and mobility. Uh, one thing she also says that most people ask themselves of their jobs during most of the pandemic was, does this suck my soul or engage my purpose? So my question, I have two questions here. Uh, Anna, I will throw this first one to you. So people are clearly exhausted for many reasons, and that statement alone can be its own briefing probably, but I'm wondering <laughs> what at a structural level can be put into place to maybe prevent people from experiencing burnout or considering retiring or resigning? Like we, we saw from those examples that burnout is a very personal thing or there are many reasons why people might resign. So I think there's uh, kind of two things to consider. Are, are you communicating enough with your employees to understand where they really are? Because a lot of people will keep that information kind of to themselves until the last minute and put on uh, you know, a face for, for the workday. And then the other is, you know, rethinking the way we've done things before, you know, do small things like do meetings mm -hmm. need to be an hour? Do I need 12 people on this meeting? Can I communicate this thing in a different, more empathetic way? Is there flexibility in this, you know, work day and, 
and how can I accommodate people with different types of needs who are on my team? So it's really um, reskilling from the management and as well as opening up valves of communication. And it's also, there's an onus on the employee to, to kind of uh, put that forward when they feel like they're approaching that point. And Rob, I'm, I'm interested, what impact do you think remote work has had on enabling that reshuffler bucket um, for employees to explore other options since this the signal did touch on how a lot of people are exploring online courses, for example. Uh, do you mm. think that would employers in this regard benefit more from like forcing uh, everyone to go back into the office and sort of having that micromanage uh, atmosphere that we were used to before the pandemic? Well, uh I push back on a little bit of the framing there, right? Like, so for example, I don't know if I would call it an enabler, right? I think for many, what this period has been is like a crystallizing force, right? That mm -hmm. either like solidifies and reconfirms how much they value that the, pla the place that they're working um, and, 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 and oh, versus, oh gosh, this isn't working for me, right? I'm thinking about our element of culture, life logic, right? A lot of things that Dever, you and Ben talked about of all the, the factors that are in people's lives. I think remote work, is, remote work has definitely given people space to determine what matters for the most. And for some people, it is that flexible work environment on the on the question around you know forcing people back to the office. At the same time, you know, uh, having if everyone being at home forever in a business not designed for it is not the yeah. answer for me, right? I think that it's about um, illustrating flexibility while providing guidance on what an organization thinks the right mix of in-person interaction, which again, facilitates learning, training, collaboration, uh, while also facilitating some of the flexibility that even people that want to be back in the office don't maybe want to totally lose in their lives. So, you know, this idea of forcing, and I don't think anything right now should be um, forced, uh, although a lot of companies obviously are, um, um, but yeah, it's finding that balance and about making sure people have that um, connection back to the hive, but still giving them the flexibility. Yeah, I think that's great. Well, listen, uh, that is why we picked this as a business bet. This is a complicated conversation. Finding that balance is difficult, but I think we can expect to be continuing to have this conversation for, for some time. So I want to, uh, that's going to take us through our briefing for the day. Big shout out to Devri, Anna, Rob, Portia on her very first briefing appearance, Mazel Tov. Um, also, obviously, a huge shout out to Heather for joining us. And Heather is going to join us again in a couple of weeks where we're going to talk about nomadic uh, worker lifestyle. She has lots of other really cool thoughts on that. So you'll have to tune back in for uh, her second appearance on the Business Bets briefing. Uh, tomorrow, we are talking about uh, the future of the pharmacy and our Culture RX series. So get ready to talk things that are medical. There's lots of cool, cool stuff going on in there. Um, and yeah, if you're interested in Q, the cultural intelligence, plat the intelligence platform we used to build today's briefings, please feel free to reach out. It has given us uh, very valuable insights and confidence uh, during this time. Uh, you can join us Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on our LinkedIn page at New York uh, noon or noon in New York time uh, to join in all these amazing conversations. So until tomorrow, consider yourselves briefed. <laughs>